April is National Poetry Month, and poetry is having a bit of a moment. I'll share my screen with you to say more. The hardcover edition of Amanda Gorman, uh, who read her poem at President Biden's inauguration, that has the highest week one sales of any poetry book ever published. That's impressive, but in the spirit of full disclosure, if you buy that book, make sure you know that it's only 32 pages long. It's, it's just that one poem in like really big font or really spaced out. Uh, and although it does include a foreword from the inimitable Oprah Winfrey and a prologue by the poet. So you may want to check it out. Or if you want to read more of Gorman's work, you may instead want to actually just put in a pre-order. I'm sure it'll eventually have a different cover uh, for Gorman's first full collection, which will be published in September and still include that inaugural poem or both. You do you. Uh, whatever feels right. I should also mention that if this poetry service leaves you wanting more poetry in your life, you have a chance midday every Wednesday. Our intern minister, Jen, leads a lunch check-in every Wednesday at 1230. It includes sharing, exploring a poem together, and open conversation. Anyone's welcome to join anytime. And you can see some of those other things that are, you know, yoga, our anti-racism book club, lots of stuff going on during the week. Uh, for now, as part of National Poetry Month, this is our annual poetry service in which every year we have one service that explores the life and legacy of a particular poet. Although individual poems can, of course, be you know, deeply meaningful to us without knowing a thing about the author, learning about a poet's background can make the entirety of their work sometimes even more deeply resonant. And in recent years, we've explored the life and work of Elizabeth Bishop, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mary Oliver, and in the future, I look, share, look forward to sharing with you about the life and legacy of Audrey and Rich, Sylvia Plath, Shiglo Miloš, uh, Denise Levertov, Audrey Lord, many more. I've got a long list. We only do one at a, one at a time. Uh, but today, our focus is the 19th century poet, Emily Dickinson. And although the Belle of Amherst was not a UU, she was often UU adjacent, and her life and legacy feel freshly relevant amidst uh, a pandemic. After all, who knows more than Emily Dickinson about making the most of what staying home has to offer? And her poetry includes powerful themes of confronting death and wrestling with grief. Uh, especially around the Civil War, as well as celebrating the beauty of nature. And as science is telling us, outside is so much safer during a pandemic. And as it gets to be better weather, we're well advised to spend time savoring the outdoors in such a time as this. And Emily can really be a wonderful guide for that. Regarding Emily Dickinson's life, there's this kind of conventional wisdom that presumes, well, I guess there's not much to say. Didn't she just like spend her life in her room writing poetry? She's often thought to have this sequestered, uneventful life, but it turns out the closer you look, the more there is to say about this remarkable person. I was surprised to learn, for example, in preparing this sermon that two of the most respected biographies about Emily Dickinson are both massive tomes. In 1972, uh, Richard Sewell um, wrote, won the National Book Award for his The Life of Emily Dickinson, published by Harvard University Press. That book weighs in at 924 pages. It's so large, it was divided into two volumes. 
Uh, similarly, Alfred Haybegger's 2002 biography of Dickinson titled My Wars Are Laid Away in Books is a little bit shorter, but not by much. It's 800 pages. Now, if close to 2,000 pages about Emily Dickinson's life feel like a little too much for you right now, maybe they don't, the new Dickinson TV series on um, Apple TV Plus, if you have that, is really a fun, accessible introduction to um, Emily's work for a new uh, generation. As a sample, let's watch the trailer to the first season. It's only about a minute long. As you watch, notice the references to women's access to education or often the lack thereof in the 19th century. Notice the references to the same-sex attraction between Emily and her best friend, Sue Gilbert, who later married Emily's brother, Austin, as well as Emily's willingness to transgress the conventions of her time in service of her art. The moment you've all been waiting for. A female poet, Emily Dickinson. A woman should receive an education, but should not be the same as a man. Maybe they're scared that if they teach us how the world works, we'll figure out how to take over. Mm. Mm. Morning, ladies. I don't know how the two of you fit into such a tiny bed. I don't give up. I have one purpose, to become a great writer. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. Hey. She's so insane. Of course she's insane. She's Emily Dickinson. You need to cut out these sort of antics. I have to do something, Sue. Desperate times, girl. Don't act like you're dead while you're still alive. If you want something, reach out and grab it. You'll be the only Dickinson they talk about in 200 years. I promise you that. To start at the beginning, Emily Dickinson was born in 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts. She was the middle child of two siblings. And unlike many women in the 19th century who did not have access, especially to higher education, um, past like kind of being a middle teenager, Emily not only attended Amherst Ac uh, Academy from ages nine through 16, but also Mount Holyoke Seminary for a few years after that. And although she did drop out of Mount Holyoke before graduating and spent the rest of her life in her parents' home, her life was far from boring. In the words of one of her biographers, on the surface, Emily Dickinson lived an ordinary life. She resided in one town, went to school, never held a job, lived in her parents' home, remained single, and died at the age of 55. To many who knew her, Emily Dickinson's only claim to fame was winning second prize for her rye and Indian bread at the annual cattle show. She really did win that. She was quite a committed baker. Uh, Dickinson's internal world, however, was extraordinary. She loved passionately, wrote scores of letters, anguished over abandonment, fought with God, found ecstasy in nature, embraced seclusion, was ambivalent toward publication, yet created almost 1,800 poems that she tucked away into a dresser drawer. Only after her death, when her sister opened the drawer, 
did the world begin to realize that the life of Emily Dickinson was far from commonplace. I should also emphasize that while Emily Dickinson was a strong introvert, let's all be clear, who treasured spending a lot of time alone, and that's fine. She also enjoyed long conversations. She loved music and baking and reading. She played the piano well. But of course, the reason that she is, as that trailer said, the only Dickinson we're talking about 200 years later, it's her remarkable poetry. We can also be honest, however, that as Jen, I think, uh, rightfully alluded to, her, her poem can, they can be dense and quite challenging to read, but they often repay close, attentive rereadings. Dickinson's poems can be difficult because they often push the limits of ordinary language as we're accustomed to seeing it. Let me share my screen with you to say a little more about that. As she said in one of her poems, tell all of the truth, but tell it slant. And she often did. Success in circuit lies, the way you have to kind of circle around the truth to get to it. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Similarly, here's the beginning of another poem that speaks to her experience of herself as a poet. This was a poet. It is that distills amazing sense from ordinary meanings. From just those 13 words in this kind of weird staccato meter, you can get a sense of her highly original, circuitous, labyrinthine dance with language and meaning that make her one of the greatest poets in the English language. In the words of one literary critic, Dickinson burrowed deep into the individual soul, tapping feelings often suppressed. She's really sexy. If you haven't read her stuff, like there's some real controversial stuff in there, like the master poems and the, anyway, we don't have time to get into all that, but it's there if you check it out. Uh, so she's tapping feelings often suppressed, unacknowledged, recondite, and fearsome. Her imagination was voracious, her images disquieting, her vision idiosyncratic, her language alive and gleaming. Along these lines, I would be remiss if I failed to mention Dickinson's own criteria for judging, is a poem good or not, whether her own or someone else's. She wrote, if I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me. I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. There are, those are the only ways I know. Is there another way, she asked? Emily knew that she was writing poetry at that sort of visceral, mind-blowing, world-historic level, but she was nevertheless conflicted about publishing her work. Indeed, she didn't leave any instructions about her poetry after she died, whether she published or anything like that. It could have all been burned, actually. Thankfully, it was not. One of the issues is that she did not want to have her life overtaken with promoting her work. It's what, what we call today building your platform. She did not want to do that. She didn't want to go on the circuit, literary circuit to you know, promote her stuff. She wanted to stay in Amherst to preserve the time and space she needed to write, to have 
good boundaries, we would say today, she was okay with remaining a relative nobody. Here's how she said it playfully in a poem. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public like a frog. To tell one's name the live long June to an admiring bog. So she's saying, is it so important that I, that what other people think of me? Who are these people that I'm allegedly supposed to care about? To further dive into this dynamic, let's watch just one more set of clips from the Dickinson TV show. This one's just about two minutes. It's from the second season and explores that explores Emily finding her voice, wrestling with what other people do think about her writing as she begins to slowly share some of it and discerning whether to publish. Sometimes when I write, I lose control. Only you would show up at a party looking like a wreck. I'm not here for the party. Come on, I need to know. What did you think of my poems? Tell me. I loved them. I always love your poems, but I can't be your only reader anymore. You need to share your writing with the world. There's someone that I need you to meet. Sam Bowles. This could be the man to put you in the spotlight. I'm always interested in hearing a new voice. What if I don't want fame? How do you want to be remembered? I'm thrilled that I could bring the two of you together. Feels like destiny. It is so crazy. Sue is an influencer. I don't want to disappear from this earth without anybody knowing who I am. Does anybody else have any intentions? The witches of Salem walked so we could run. Sometimes when I write, I lose control. You're about to become world famous overnight. Your aura is negative right now. I used to have this confidence. But now since I met him... What a crazy day this is. Not as crazy as what's going on up here. She's so extra. If you could put your name on what you wrote, would you? Who would? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. You pressured me into this. And I don't even recognize you. Things kind of like... Death. What's up, girl? Part of me is pretty sure that fame isn't good for me. In fact, I think it could be very dangerous. What? It's like your brain is on fire. That tracks. So Dickinson has been renewed for a third season. It'll likely explore the poems that Emily wrote during the Civil War. Many of those were about mortality and death and grief and feel, you know, newly resonant today as we live through the end stages of a pandemic that has resulted in almost 3 million deaths worldwide. When someone we loved, love dies, we are changed. And Emily really wrestled with that over um, the time of the Civil War. Let me share my screen with you to show you a few more slides.
Dickinson put it this way after she learned that a close family member had died during a close friend of the family had died during the war. She said, the world is not the shape it was. I suspect many of you have experienced that after a loss. A year into the war, I'll read you just the first and last stanzas of a poem that she wrote about her ongoing grief upon reading one tragic headline after another, another dynamic many of us have felt lately. She said, I felt a funeral in my brain. Have you ever felt like that? What a powerful, emotive, head-spinning way to put it. And mourners to and fro kept treading treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And just when Emily thinks that clear thinking is emerging through the fog of sadness, she continues, and then a plank in reason broke. And I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing. Then it ends there, leaving us hanging, not fully resolved, as so often happens with grief. That same summer of 1862, she wrote one of her most famous reflections on our inevitable mortality. None of us are getting out of this alive, which begins with just an unforgettable line. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. I'm telling you, if nothing else, Emily could write a first line. She just had some killer first lines. With only two lines, she arrestingly confronts us with the truth that busyness and a sense of self-importance is no protection against mortality. As we begin to glimpse the light at the end of this pandemic and seek to continue processing our own often overwhelming feelings, I find this poem by Dickinson on grief um, from the summer of 1863 in the middle of the Civil War to be so searingly honest in its self-disclosure. I'll share only the first stanza of this longer poem. She said, I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. That's what the Buddhists call, you know, comparing brain. If you're curious to read more of Dickinson's poetry, much of it is free online, and there are many different editions. My current favorite is the Emily Dickinson's poems as she preserved them that really does emphasize her own kind of as best we can discern uh, way of ordering them. But before I move to the end of Dickinson's life, let me say just a little more about her significant connections to some of our Unitarian forebears. If you were watching those two TV trailers closely, you may have spotted a cameo appearance in Dickinson by Joja Mamet, best known for playing Shoshana on Girls. Uh, she plays our uh, Unitarian forebear Louisa May Alcott meeting uh, Emily Dickinson. Or you may have seen um, comedian John Mulvaney playing Henry David Thoreau uh, meeting uh, Dickinson. Among other such encounters, I could list our transcendentalist forebear, Ralph Waldo Emerson, also dined and spent the uh, night next door to Emily at the home of her brother and sister-in-law and also best friend, Sue. Sue really was an influencer in her time. Like her, her place was kind of really hip and the place to be, the Evergreens. But so much more significant than any of those fairly brief encounters was the deep friendship of more than two decades between Dickinson and the Unitarian minister, Thomas Wentworth Higgison. This is a really great book, White Heat. Over time, she sent him more than 100 of her best poems. If you want the details, you can check out this book by Brenda Wineapple. 
There's a lot to say about Higginson. I'll plan to do a full sermon on him at some point just to give you um, just the briefest of highlights. As we've explored in depth in the past of the Secret Six who helped fund and supply John Brown's 1859 raid on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, uh, of that Secret Six, five were Unitarians and two of those five were Unitarian ministers. And Higginson was one of those Unitarian ministers that was part of the Secret Six. During the Civil War, he was also the colonel who volunteered to lead the first Black regiment of Union soldiers. But in addition to being a fierce, really unrelenting activist for racial justice, he was a great lover of literature, of poetry, and nature. And I think his iconoclasm is also part of what resonated with Emily. And after Emily's death in 1806, it was Higginson and Mabel Loomis Todd, with whom Emily's brother Austin had a long time affair, who were the primary forces behind publishing Emily's poetry. And on the one hand, um, Todd in particular did not fully appreciate that Dickinson's idiosyncratic use of language and punctuation were intrinsic to her genius. And Todd made some extremely ill-informed editorial changes that are not a good look for her uh, in the early editions of Emily's poetry. Uh, but at the same time, Todd's often clumsy efforts, along with Higginson's unflagging persistence in continuing to champion Dickinson for uh, years after her death, did succeed in raising public awareness about Emily's work so that eventually it could be published in its original unadulterated form. For now, although there is so much more to say, you know, close to a thousand pages worth in Sewell's book, if you want to check it out, about the life and legacy of Emily Dickinson, I want to begin to transition toward another part of our annual UU ritual of flower communion with a final major theme of Dickinson's poetry, her love of nature. As she wrote in a lovely short poem in 1858 that shows her transgressive approach to religion and spirituality, in the name of the bee, and of the butterfly, and of the breeze. Amen. That, that was what, that was church for Emily. And in that spirit of exploring the sacred power of nature, you had the opportunity earlier during the chalice lighting to share a flower with one another, and as a related part of practicing flower communion in these physically distanced times, I want to invite you just for a few moments to watch a series of flower photos set to the hymn De Coloris, which we often sing during flower communion. The practice of flower communion, as Jen mentioned earlier, originated in 1921 in the Unitarian Congregation in Prague, which at that time was in the capital city of Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Uh, Reverend Chopik designed flower communion as a celebration of diversity and individual liberty in the face of the rising authoritarianism of Nazism, and he eventually was arrested and, and died at Dachau. Uh, flower communion remains a powerful practice of celebrating individuality and multiculturalism in our own time. As no two flowers are alike, so no two ones of us are alike, yet each of us has a unique contribution to make. Together, our different flowers form a beautiful bouquet, and our common bouquet of our beloved community would not be the same without the unique addition of each one of us. We are lessened anytime any one of us is absent. In that spirit, as we prepare to watch this flower slideshow set to the music of De Coloris, I invite you to savor the beauty of those images to come. As Emily Dickinson once confessed in a letter, the only commandment from the Bible I ever obeyed, consider the lilies. This version of De Coloris is fairly long, but I invite you 
see if you can give yourself permission to just sink into the present moment as you watch. Open your heart, your mind, your spirit, as Emily might do. As she wrote in another nature poem from later in her life, to make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee and reverie. The reverie will do if the bees are few. Reverie means an absent-minded dreaming, imaginative thoughts indulged in while awake. So let us enter into this meditation, this flower communion with reverie and with great love for one another in all our diversity and with great love for the diverse splendor of this beautiful planet. 